1: everyone, and welcome to Midday's Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this toasty Tuesday there, Rhino. Oh, I wouldn't go so far as to call it toasty. (laughs) I felt like it heated up a bit yesterday afternoon. A little bit, yeah. When the sun went down, though, it was comfortable, and this morning it was, but... Nonetheless, it is September. That's still summer, actually, according For to another couple of weeks, yeah. or maybe week and a half. But I believe a little front is pushing through, and the temperatures are scheduled to moderate in a couple of days, right?
2: Oh yeah, if the weatherman's to be believed, this time next week we'll have a morning low in the low 60s.
1: Wow, I hadn't seen that handle on the front of the temperature in a while. Well. We, uh, we've we got a good program lined up for you today at 1035. Danielle Morgan, Executive Director of the Mississippi Tourism Association, gives us an update from the MTA and the state of tourism in the Magnolia State. And then at 1205, Emily Gravely, fourth-year Ole Miss doctoral student in pharmacy administration, will discuss... Uh, the hesitancy of some pharmacists to dispense naloxone—is that did I say that right? Yeah, naloxone. Naloxone. All right. We uh, we're looking forward to those interviews today. Other than that, we got a whole bunch of stuff going on. We talked yesterday about President Joe Biden not being physically present at any of the three attack sites from 9-11, where it is customary to conduct memorial ceremonies at those sites, Washington, New York, Pennsylvania. And Joe Biden was not present, was 4,000 miles away, as a matter of fact, in Alaska. First time in the 22-year history, post-9-11, that a sitting president was not physically present at one of those three sites. Okay, so they're making all sorts of excuses you've probably seen about this. Well, you know, he can still honor the the event 4,000 miles away. Alaska's part of the country and all that sort of stuff. But this was the first time a president wasn't anywhere in the contiguous 48 states to mark the occasion. But I guess you'd have to say he can't help it. And here's what I mean by that. He once again discussed that uh, stated yesterday in his remarks that he was on the ground at Ground Zero, specifically in New York, site of the fallen Twin Towers, says he was there the day after, right? And said um, he was on site and looked down the area. And uh, what he's he say, Ryan? Something about lo- look like... Hell on earth, or something to that effect. Except, it felt like I was
2: looking through the gates of hell.
1: The gates of hell. That's what it was. Thank you. Except, he wasn't there. That's a lie. Can we just call it that? It's a lie. He, in fact, was in Washington. He was a sitting U.S. Senator at the time and delivered remarks on the Senate floor. Many of our members of the Senate and the House did so, and I think it was an effort to show the world that the country was united, certainly the center of the power structure in this country, under the dome of that Capitol, and that there was resolve among our leaders, to bring justice to those who perpetrated these dastardly attacks. And I'll be honest with you, I went and listened. It was about eight minutes or so, his comments. They really weren't bad. And what really struck me is the difference in his cognitive and speaking ability then and now. Significant decline. He was actually reading, not reading, speaking without a teleprompter. He had some notes in front of him, like they often do, and he would occasionally refer to those notes. But he was able to deliver that speech without looking down very much and was making eye contact as he kind of shifted his, 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 uh, his head point around the crowd, like you should do when you're speaking, making eye contact to the members, to the audience there. And and spoke cogently, understandably, enunciating words in a way that you could discern what he was saying. I mean, I'll be honest with you; I was impressed. But again, only impressed because of what we see today. I mean, you would look at that and say, "Well, sure, a person in that position should be able to speak in that fashion." But we have such a low expectation today that just that simple performance caught my attention but the fact is he lied about it now why does he do that he was not in fact at ground zero the day after well you really
2: only have two options here either he's a pathological liar that's been lying for his entire adult life and probably before and can't discern the difference between his web of lies and reality. Or, he's so far gone with dementia that he doesn't know where his butt is half the time, so he's lost track of reality. It's one of
1: the two. It ain't right. All I can say is, and and again, I'd point out that if this were an occasional occurrence where the truth was stretched or there was some embellishment in his statements, in his remarks, I guess I could live with that a little bit, although I still say that's not acceptable for a person in that position, or any person for that matter. Lying is never acceptable. And and he's not just stretching the truth a little bit. He's lying. He was not physically there. But this is just another one of those Farcical embellishments that you just have to add to the long list of such. Why well, does he insist on doing that? I don't get it. Uh, it from driving eighteen-wheelers and hitting doubles in the congressional baseball game, uh, his lifeguarding and his being with his dad who pointed out a gay couple, all that crap. What did he say, riding Amtrak 4 billion miles or something crazy like that? Why does he do that? I, just, I don't get – it's almost as if, well, my life has really not been remarkable in reality, so i got to lie. Or maybe it's an attempt to empathize, to get some sort of uh, – garner some sort of praise and adulation – I don't know, connect with a crowd? But you're not doing that. When you tell the entire world, yeah, I was there ground zero, I looked down through the area there, it looked like the gates of hell. No, you weren't. You were on the Senate floor.
2: I just wonder what happened to the army of fact-checkers that felt like it was their life goal, their entire mission on this planet, to make sure that the President of the United States speaks
1: truthfully that is so true and and even though they have to a small extent called him out about that you know they won't go so far as to say these fact checkers at the Washington Post and the New York Times they stop short of declaring them as lies they just are i mean they're they're not even just again Small it's because the it
2: all nobodies with press passes don't really care about speaking truth to power. They just want their guy to be in charge. Sure seems
1: like it. So Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler, he says, quote, Biden loves to retell certain stories. Some aren't credible, but he won't retell. There's no retelling. Just tell the facts about what really happened. So they kind of bust him a little bit on it, but they stop short of just saying that he lied. Sometimes the stories turn out to be largely true, but others fall short. (laughs) Oh gosh, we got a lot to talk about today. We are in the Element Well studio. More coming up. Danielle Morgan, Executive Director of the Mississippi Tourism Association at 10 to 35. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Lying next to you. Yeah,
0: lying next to you. Middays with Gerard. Garrett. What? What? This is so awesome
1: Jimi Hendrix with All Along the Watchtower. we got to play the Dave Mason version of that, by the way. I mean, I like Hendrix's version, but Dave Mason's version is pretty cool, too. So, uh, yesterday, I attended the, uh, the post-funeral ceremony, the reception for Duck Shanks former Mississippi Valley State baseball coach, father of our good friend Fred Shanks, a representative, state representative from Brandon. And it's clear that the coach was uh, was loved by many because there was a huge turnout, as there should be. And so he was uh, really also instrumental in bringing minor league baseball to Jackson, to Mississippi with the Jackson Mets. Uh, I remember that well. It was in the in the 70s. He was also an instrumental member of the Republican Party in the state, ran for mayor of Jackson twice in 77 and 81, lost to Dale Danks. He was a fine man. He will certainly be missed, uh, no doubt about that, but uh, glad I went. Uh, yesterday, and uh, in honor of the coach, and again, so many people were touched by his life, and he was a great Mississippian and Jacksonian, I believe a graduate of Provine High School over there in West Jackson, where I grew up as well, and gosh, knew more about, I should say forgot more about baseball than most of us knew. He, he loved the game, and he could coach it very well and, and uh, develop many, many young men along the way. So we certainly will miss him. All right, Rhino, speaking of sports, we had the Jets last night. Oh, yeah. Playing uh, Monday night football. Aaron Rodgers comes out. The lights were turned down for... The, uh, the team coming out on the field, taking the field. And Aaron Rodgers, of course, quarterback now for the Jets, comes out hoisting an American flag on 9-11, of course. Very patriotic moment and just a sense of pride, I think. Came across everyone in attendance and those of us who watched as well. But old Keith Oberman, you know who he is. Left-wing loon used to be on, on ESPN. Sad, angry little man. Whew, he just won't shut up. Well, you may know the story. Uh, Aaron Rodgers sustained a, an injury that caused him to have to exit the game early on in the game, in the first quarter. A Lis Frank foot. Did I say that right? Lis Frank foot injury. is, is I mean, when he tore his Achilles. That's right. Uh, ankle sprain, or possibly even an Achilles. That's the official statement from the Jets' physician. And I'm, I don't know that I've ever heard of Lis Frank. I've never heard of that term before. But that it, it is something about the uh, sudden Lisfranc, Frank. Any of the bones or ligaments in the Lis Frank joint break or tear. Midfoot injury typically from sudden trauma. Well, Keith Oberman, the idiot that he is, and I'm just going to call him that here. It's a little out of character for a man I don't like to call people idiots. But this was ridiculous when a man sustains an injury like this, an injury that probably is going to end his year, not his career, could, you know, depending on the severity of it, Keith Oberman, I'm looking at his tweet. Another hashtag sudden list, Frank, due to failure to vaccinate. With six little syringe needle emojis after that statement. Now, the reason is you remember Aaron Rodgers voicing opposition to NFL policy about players being required to get vaccinated. I think ultimately they dropped that requirement. I think it became, if I'm not mistaken, a team-by-team decision. That's their employer, the team. And so Aaron Rodgers spoke out, as did many athletes, against the mandate. And goofy Keith Oberman, who mocked NFL players for speaking out against it now decides to mock this world class athlete once again because he simply didn't want to take the injection. And he spoke out against it. And Oberman mocks him after he sustains an injury. Oh, but, you know, they're so compassionate, those people on the left. They're so caring. They have such concern for everybody. I say horse hockey. They do not. Only people who fall in line with their gross ideology. And this is a situation. Now, on a lighter side, please tell the audience about a bar that uh, had a little offer on the
2: top. Oh, yeah. It was Jack's American Pub in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They had a deal going because Aaron Rodgers left the Packers after a long career with the Packers to go to the Jets. So they had a bit of a bet going that, hey, if the Jets lose, we'll pay your bar tab. So a lot of people showed up and started drinking, but they were drinking moderately until four plays into the game, Aaron Rodgers tears his Achilles, and then they were like, oh, oh, wait a minute, I get a free night of drinking because there's no way the Jets can win without Rodgers. So they started running up their tab. They spent the whole game buying whatever they wanted to the point where the news, the local news, showed up. And the local news just so happened to be live (laughs) when it dawned on them that, wait a second, this is overtime. Wait, the Jets, they're running it back. The Jets are going to win. I got to pay my tab. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, that's pretty awesome. So, Oberman, by the way, on the C Spire text line, Rambo and Carthage, wasn't Oberman a sportscaster at one time. He was. That's um, not sure if you called that earlier. Yeah, he worked for ESPN, and he was, he was a primetime guy. He actually wasn't bad as, a, as just a sports journalist until, like so many of them, he had to inject his personal social justice agenda if you will, in his politics, into sports. And I got to where I wouldn't watch ESPN years ago, long before all this woke stuff happened, anytime he was on. I just couldn't deal with it. That's oh it's Oberman, I'm I'm switching it. Well, he also jumped all over New York Yankee David Wells. David Wells said something about a Nike his dislike for Nike and Bud Light because they've gone so crazy woke and and are trying to push this this social justice agenda as opposed to just making shoes and beer. And Oberman goes to Twitter and attacks David Wells. He says, "Bull mm, s you can fill in the blanks." The company formerly known as Twitter, on the company formerly known as Twitter on X, the company formerly known as Twitter, we call it Twitter here, though, quote, David Wells would drink wood alcohol, another F-bomb fraud. And so Wells responded back, Keith, shut the F up. (laughs) Just because you never played the game and all you did was work for ESPN and talk, S-word on all of us players because you have a degree in journalism makes you an expert on putting athletes down. And that's if you even have a degree. Stick to your politics. Touche, David. So that is so true, is it not? Keith Overman couldn't roll a ball down the field, much less throw it over the plate. Unbelievable. It This guy... What did you say? It's just miserable little man. Sad, so. miserable little man. <laughs> oh, gosh. It is so true. It is so incredibly true. We're stepping aside for a break right here. It's midday. It's having a little fun today. A whole lot more to talk about. But next, Danielle Morgan Executive Director of Mississippi Tourism Association will get an update on tourism in the state of Mississippi and any events coming up as well. Stay with us. We will be right back. <laughs> back, everyone. It's midday. We are live in the Element Wealth Studio. We appreciate you joining us today. And we welcome to the program, Danielle Morgan, Executive Director, Mississippi Tourism Association. Danielle, morning. Thanks for coming on. Hi,
3: Gerard. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, uh, give us an update. What's going on at the MTA? Of course, we're sort of winding down the, uh, the summer vacation season a bit. How did we do? Uh, what did people see when they came to Mississippi?
3: Absolutely. Well, some great news is our um, June analytics from Tourism Economics showed that Mississippi had the second largest year-over-year growth in visitor spending, with an 18% increase from last year.
1: Wow. Well, so to what so, uh, do you attribute that, that increase?
3: You know, I think, um, of course, we've got some great things working at the state level with marketing at Visit Mississippi. We also have our recovery funding that has rolled out across the state in communities throughout the state, and that's just been a tremendous marketing push to get people into the state. Also, um, we I'm proud to say that Visit Mississippi won a national award from U.S. Travel for their broadcast marketing campaign. So that was a tremendous honor competing with people across the United States for Mississippi to take that top honor. Wow. It was really exciting for us.
1: Wow. So tell us about that campaign. What, uh, what did that consist of exactly? Where, where were you marketing uh, with certain media, certain messaging?
3: Well, of course, um, key drive markets are always um, our top markets, touch dates particularly. Um, and this campaign, it covered a lot of different areas. It covered um, a civil rights campaign. It covered some outdoor. We've seen a tremendous increase in outdoor um, attractions since COVID particularly. Mm. And also family-friendly activities and um, also cultural and arts is a huge draw for us too. So it covered a lot of different different areas, and it's been a very successful campaign um, for those states.
1: So what about the economic impact, Danielle? Of course, when folks visit our state, they're spending money in a lot of different ways. Uh, certainly, uh, those who, who cater to and, and accommodate uh, tourists benefited from that.
3: Absolutely, certainly. It was, it was great to see such tremendous numbers for the summer um, a lot of other areas have kind of, um, you know, the recovery has gone a little flat. It's not really, it's not gone down, but it's just kind of been a little flatter than that immediate uh, post post pandemic travel push. Of course, a lot of people, I'm sure you've known many people to go to Europe this year. Yep. Um, we've lost a lot of our our um, United States residents have made that bucket list trip to Europe, but we've also got a lot of people who may not be able to do that who are. Driving to places like Mississippi to have those great experiences here, so um, we're happy to we're happy to have them for certain.
1: It's football season as well in Mississippi. That that's a big time for those of us uh, in the Magnolia State. We've got uh, great venues, great programs, and and more importantly, we've got great college towns in Mississippi. Certainly, those are a draw for people that uh, come to the Magnolia State, maybe to support. Uh, the opposing teams to the Mississippi teams, they follow them as fans, but they, too, come in and spend a lot of money.
3: Absolutely. You know, um, a really cool thing that's kind of new in the last year is um, uh, our SEC cities realized that a lot of people were visiting for games, but they may not be able to see everything in the community while they were here. So, um, actually, some of our Mississippi college towns were leaders and pulling together tourism entities from across the SEC, and they have started Cities of the SEC, which they're marketing um, while you're in town for the big game. Make sure you visit all of these attractions in these wonderful communities throughout the SEC. So that's a really cool. They have a passport. Um, so be sure you can check out their website, Cities of the SEC, and um, see all of those great SEC towns. Well,
1: wow, that's pretty cool. So was there some... Uh uh, some collaboration among the the towns to to put this together. I'm sure there was, huh?
3: Yes, absolutely. They've um, they're like I said, they're kind of in their first year, so they put together a video highlighting all of these communities. They had a presence at SEC Media Days, and they're kind of partnering more with um with the SEC to make sure that they're getting all of those um, wonderful things to do out to people who are visiting to support their favorite college team.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you think this may actually attract people who are just interested in, in um, just ex- the experience and may not necessarily have an, an association with one of the teams competing?
3: For sure. I think, um, you know, both of our, our SEC schools provide an incredible tailgate experience, no matter if you're a, a, rebel, a rebel or bulldog. As we say, um, this campaign proves rebels and bulldogs can be friends. So uh, we certainly want to show them the best time. And I think it certainly is. Like you mentioned, the towns are wonderful places to live as well as um, home to the universities. And, you know, it's kind of a misconception that people think cities like Oxford or Charlottesville. that, well, they don't need any more tourism because they have you know, the university there, but really that's eight weekends a year. Yeah. And so they're always looking at ways to market those other other weekends and make sure that they attract people at that time as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that they sort of lost a couple of years in there with the COVID stuff, and, and to a great extent, they're still trying to recover uh, from those setbacks. And and so we, we, we need to, um, you know, keep it up. <laughs> Certainly now that we're all back to normal, just to – uh, account for and offset uh, the it was brutal slowdown for a couple of years there.
3: Absolutely. And you know, as I mentioned, Mississippi's fortunately recovered better than a lot of other yeah. states um due to kind of the vision of our leadership and making sure that we um, put measures in place to recover quickly. and that's been very beneficial to us. But of course, we never want to lose momentum. We want to keep that that momentum going. And capitalize on those returns for sure.
1: And and, uh, Danielle, what about just people who live in the state of Mississippi who who, uh, we sort of have a tendency to stay in our communities where we live, where we work, raise our families, worship, etc., and play? Uh, Are we seeing people start to explore other areas of the state? Because it's a big state with a lot of attractions and a lot to see. I know a couple of years ago, I was invited to speak to a group in Natchez, and I hadn't been there in a while. I was just blown away at the beauty of Natchez there on the bluff and the river and took a little time to make that river walk, took some photos and and stuff, and, and ate while I was in town. And I'm just not picking on Natchez and pointing that out, but we've got lots of communities like that with lots to see, and it'd be a good thing for Mississippians to get out and enjoy it, experience it.
3: For sure. And I think that's also a positive after the pandemic. I think we've seen more people um, explore their own backyard and maybe discover some wonderful things around the state that they may not have known about. And I think that's been uh, a silver lining um, for state residents to kind of rediscover what makes Mississippi so special and seeing those other areas. And, you know, in tourism, Mississippi's really put a um, stronger focus on developing our tourism assets over the last few years. And that's really paid off. You look at um, you know the aquarium down on the coast and um, the Max and Meridian, the Children's Museum, all of those wonderful things have really um, helped to boost our tourism economy.
1: That's that's a good point. Uh, a good way to describe it, I should say, is rediscover. Because I think a lot of us, uh, I mean, I'm certainly one that have been in these areas uh, just in my history of living in Mississippi, but maybe hadn't been a while. And, and a lot of things are the same, but a lot of things have changed. There's a lot more to do uh, I think I would cruising in the coast a couple of years ago. I interviewed uh, the director of, I believe it's the Mardi Gras Museum, for example, uh, on the coast, and I didn't even know one existed. That just sounded really cool. We have a rich history there with the Mardi Gras holiday. And, and uh, it was indicated that people do come from all over the country just to visit that particular museum.
3: They really do. And there's all kinds of little hidden jewels um, in every corner of the state, there's hidden jewels that you may not have discovered yet. And, you know, I say the best way to see Mississippi is to, to get on the back roads and just drive, you know, um, see what you find. A lot of times it'll lead you to something unexpected or unknown, but it's um, part of the part of the fun is getting there for sure. So,
1: Well, we have a beautiful state, and I enjoy it each time I get out and travel to, uh, uh, to remote broadcast. And, uh, again, I'm just um, – uh, always, uh, I guess, a bit stunned and taken back at just the rich beauty of our state. And but you got to get out and see it. There is so much to enjoy and experience. And the other good thing is, people in Mississippi are just good. They're just hospitable. They're nice. That's why we're known as the hospitality state. And everywhere you go, you're uh, always received with uh, welcome open arms.
3: That's right. Our greatest asset is our people. No doubt about
1: that. No doubt about it. Danielle, thanks for coming in today. And uh, Telling us about the Mississippi Tourism Association. Sounds like a lot of good stuff going on. Keep up the great work. We appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thanks.
3: Thanks, Gerard. Take care.
1: We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us.
0: Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back. On Super Talk Mississippi.
1: The back of this truck. I warn you twice and now I'm riding you up. I said officer, what have I done? He smiled and said, Boy, you having too much fun. We are back in the Element well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to MyElementWealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. we got some economic news to share with you a little bit later in the program. Ryan from Corinth on the C-Spire text line. By the way, that's six zero one eight seven nine four three nine five. Sent uh, this report. Looks like from ESPN concerning Aaron Rodgers. Says he has a torn Achilles tendon. This was just released about an hour ago. It looks like uh, on the fourth snap. I knew it was early on in the game, but I don't know that I see any information in there about his prognosis and whether or not he is expected to return to action this uh, year. I
2: mean, he's pretty much out for the season with a torn Achilles. Yeah, and it
1: takes a while, doesn't it, to heal With from his
2: that. age and this stage in his career, I don't know that there are any betting odds for it, but I don't think it looks good for him
1: suiting up and playing another down of NFL football. Hmm. Hate to hear that. Yeah, you just hate to go out that way. Thirty-nine years old, man. Hate to hear that. Harold in Tupelo says, "I think that is the same injury that Matt Corral sustained last year."
2: Yeah, the list, Frank, the midfoot.
1: Yeah, that, which is not what
2: Aaron Rodgers suffered.
1: Right. Uh, it ultimately was not. It was thought it might be initially. Career ending, in my opinion, says Tim and McGee. Man, I hate to hear that. I really do. Thompson Greenwood says he sent a a tweet. I guess that's a tweet. I think so. Or is that? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't that's mind. a tweet. I couldn't remember. I couldn't tell if it was a tweet or a Facebook post. But David Saslov Aaron Rodgers is going to tear his Achilles on a rain drenched metlife turf in 2.5 hours this was at 501 p.m. yesterday for the game really it just speculating i guess forecasting projecting that given the wet turf did was it say said whether or not the condition of the turf contributed was a factor here
2: I don't think anybody wants to get sued by the MetLife Stadium people, but it does seem like they have a history of injuries related to their turf to the point where, I forget who it was, but there was it was either a former NFL player or a current NFL player was talking about mm-hmm. how the NFL and MetLife Stadium care more about soccer players because they're going to have full grass for the upcoming World Cup in 2026 They care more about soccer players than football players because they're making the football players Mm. play on turf. Yeah, okay. Oh, jeez. Turf gate, I guess, right? So, I mean, there are stark differences between playing on grass and playing on
1: turf. No doubt. I totally agree.
2: Turf is much better than it was in, say, the 60s and 70s, but it's still nothing compared to grass. That's why pretty much... Every major sport tries their best to play on some form of natural surface. No doubt.
1: Unless it's just absolutely not feasible. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And I, I do think there is kind of a maybe a migration back to that, back oh, yeah. to natural turf. I, I mean,
2: I, if you look at any of the newer stadiums, even the indoor stadiums, they've been built with the capacity to open up a side of the stadium to wheel in yeah. natural grass. It yeah. may not be grown on site, but they will bring it in and put it down because it's just that much safer than playing
1: on turf. Yeah. Uh, it makes total sense. I mean, it just it just gives in a way that artificial won't, just the bottom line. Also, Thomas in Greenwood says, congratulations on your recent accolades, by the way. Well, I, I really appreciate that, Thomas, and uh, I mean that uh, from the heart. And I didn't say anything about it, but uh, I, was, uh, I was honored to be inducted into the Who's Who in America registry. And I got notified of that a couple of months ago. It's, it's kind of a unique process. I got notified in the, in the mail and their team is, you know, searches for people that might, uh, I guess, meet the, the standards and the criteria. And so I got notified, and then they asked me to call in the letter, and I called to schedule an interview, a phone interview, and the phone interview was about an hour. And at the end of the interview, <laughs> um, so I was told I was nominated in the letter. At the end of the interview, the, the interviewer said, uh, congratulations, you passed. And I guess I didn't know, didn't understand that the interview was sort of the final test. And I, I was told that 65% of the people that advance to the interview don't pass the interview, which I felt like was kind of an outside.
0: And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Welcome back, everyone. It is hour two of middays. So, uh... Rhino muted the music, the bumper music, and I didn't catch it, and I was talking right through the break there, but i just close this story out. Um, I'm honored to be listed as a, they call it a a biography in the Who's Who in America. Been around since 1898. I was uh, stunned at that. So yeah, I did the interview and was told I passed, and they put the bio together, and so that's now published and online. and and it has been sent. That's what they do. They do it in a press release format. It, it goes all over the digital universe. Uh, honored. Pretty cool. I will say this nobody achieves anything in life exclusively by themselves. Just doesn't happen. It takes lots of people in your, in your orbit. Uh, to achieve, to accomplishment, and I have been abundantly blessed by an amazing family, world-class colleagues, and a whole bunch of great friends, and that's not only for my entrepreneurial career, but I mean that about my present occupation here at this company. Uh, That's what it takes to, uh, to produce, to achieve. It can't be done independently. It's, it's uh, it does require working with others collaboratively, successfully, productively, towards same outcome. And I have um, again been incredibly blessed to have experienced that and so i'm I'm grateful for the distinction and I'm especially grateful and honored that, it is attached to my home state of Mississippi that I love so much. And to advance to kind of a, it's really not just national presence, but global with the Who's Who organization is something I am incredibly grateful for. So, uh, Liz Frank, named after Napoleon's surgeon. Well, it certainly looked French to me. When soldiers were dismounted from their foot, was too far in the stirrup, causing fractures. Wow. My wife had a list, Frank, fracture. All the long bones in her foot were broken in a car accident. Put back together with surgery. In Napoleon's time, you just lost your foot. I can believe that. <clears throat> That's from Ron in Ocean Springs. Appreciate that uh, that bit of historical context there. Really do. But what we've learned now is that, based on the report that we were sent on the C-SPIRE text line here, just released by ESPN, published by ESPN, is that it's an Achilles heel injury. Yeah, they confirmed it with
2: an MRI this morning. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, just watching it, 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 it didn't look like that it was going to produce that sort of serious injury, but uh, you just can't tell. It
2: It depends. If you were watching the Manning cast, it seems like they knew a little more than the average person, because when Aaron Rodgers left the medical tent to get on the cart, Peyton Manning was, he he could not believe what he was seeing. Oh, okay. And then before halftime, you had people on social media with the video of the injury slowing it down, and zooming in, and... It's pretty apparent pretty quickly. You, you, When, when an Achilles tears, the, the calf muscle contracts. Okay. Makes and sense. as soon as he put pressure on that ankle, on that leg, you saw a, a jolt and you saw the
1: calf muscle contract. Man, I sure do hope he recovers. I, you just don't like to see anybody's career end that way so abruptly. I mean, it's not anything you anticipate or look forward to. You want to see someone who's achieved what Aaron Rodgers has in that sport as a world-class athlete go out with, uh, in a little different situation other than a career-ending injury. Just hope that's not the case. So we will certainly pray for his full and swift recovery. I know it's a long road. I know those are difficult injuries to get over for sure. By the way, uh, Middays is going to be remote at two Mississippi museums this Thursday. Just in a couple of days, Empower Mississippi's third annual policy summit at the two museums on Thursday brings together state leaders and policy experts for a solution-centered discussion on how to tackle our biggest challenges and help all Mississippians rise. Middays with Gerard Gibbert will be there on Thursday talking to state and national policy experts about education, the economy, and criminal justice. Go to empowermississippi.org to get your tickets today. I, uh, I will be moderating one of the panel discussions, the one on economic policy and work, after we host a show there. So I think uh, that kicks off, if I'm not mistaken, at 2 o'clock. I'll be moderating one of the panel discussions. Then you've probably heard the ads on our show. I'll be headed to the Ole Miss Business School. The, the uh, Family Business Symposium is being held this year in Rankin County at the Sheraton on Airport Road near the airport. Last year it was held uh, on campus. Beheaded there, I believe Hugh Mina, the CEO of C Spire, is one of the featured speakers, others as well. I was honored to be a speaker last year, along with uh, Coach Mike Bianco and and some other uh, notable business leaders in the state that um, are involved in family business-type settings. And that's really what it's it's about. Um, for example, the uh, Lamptons, Lamptons from Ergon. They talked about their multi-generational uh, business there. Very successful Mississippi business. Cannon Motors in Oxford, I think, was there last year as well. My friend Steve Grantham is instrumental in this event. He owns the Outback Steakhouses within the state. It's something that he took over from his father. Big Steve. We call him Reno. Steve Areno. Fine man. Passed away a few years ago. Steve and I were in school together. He's also a great Mississippian, runs a great business, and does a lot, folks, for the community, especially the armed forces. He's just always quick to jump in and, and help and uh, takes care of his team as well. So uh, we have our own ESPN Yahoo, Richard Cross. <laughs> no, nah, man, Richard is awesome. The um, The... Sports Talk guys, they're crushing it. That's a great program. And uh, with Borky and Haydad and Cross, do a fantastic job. Very entertaining. They're very knowledgeable. And we're proud to have them as part of our lineup, no doubt about it. Let's see, with his ego, he'll go visit a Himalayan meditation retreat and make another run at it. Lord have mercy! If he can make those kind of predictions, I need him some for some sports bet, betting advice," says Chris from Oxford, returning to, referring to the tweet that Thomas sent us a screenshot of that predicted an Achilles' heel injury two hours before the game last night. It is,
2: it's weird, but eerie. it's not all that uncommon on Twitter. I mean, you've got millions of people tweeting hundreds of times a day, and some individuals on Twitter do that kind of stuff where they'll just throw random things out into the ether, sometimes contradicting even themselves in back-to-back posts, just hoping one of them comes true, and then they'll go delete all the ones that are untrue and leave the one that's true up.
1: Yeah. I um, All for the so-called clout. Yeah, I guess so. Absolutely. Darren and Jackson? what's was he saying? I have a question regarding Secretary of State race. Paul had Shawaski Young on last week, and they were talking about eligibility. And Young stated he voted in California recently because he has a residence there. Doesn't that have to be a primary residence? If he is running for office here, wouldn't that have been voter fraud on his part? I don't think it rises to the level of voter fraud. It would be voter fraud if you voted... Uh, simultaneously in in uh, two different states. But that would be more of an issue if you're voting in a presidential election. That's more the concern that you vote in multiple states because you haven't cleaned up your voter records. And more importantly, those responsible for maintaining the accuracy of those records haven't cleaned them up. But I say again, I don't know that most people think about calling the circuit clerk and saying, hey, look, I'm leaving, so take me off the voter rolls. You're shaking your head. I just don't think no. that happens. Does anybody think about that? So that would be the bigger problem, and there, and there are some who contend that voters did do such. They voted in multiple states because they still are on voter rolls in multiple states, having moved between one or the other. Coming right back with more on Middays in the Element Well Studio.
0: Point three. And now the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now out. Out. onto the real fun.
4: Dino Mike
0: on Super Talk Mississippi. <laughs>
1: Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays with 25 or 6 to 4. That's Chicago bumping us into this segment. The great Terry Kath on the guitar there, Danny Serafin on the drums. Yeah, they don't make music like that anymore, as they say, do they? Imagine that, a horn section in rock and roll like that. They're pretty good at that. I'm not sure any other band was as good as them with that.
2: I mean there was a revival of the horn section in the 90s with the rise of ska. Okay. But uh, yeah since then if you hear horns nowadays in music nine times out of ten it's gonna be somebody playing a keyboard
1: with it set to sound like horns. That's true. (laughs) It's absolutely true. Uh, Yeah. All that fancy gadgetry we have today. Like the auto-tune with the voice stuff. Oh, yeah. Same sort of deal.
2: Which that really, that ball got rolling with Britney Spears, and it never slowed down.
1: That's true. That's uh, I heard the same thing.
2: Because if you looked at any of her front of house, back of house stacks, which is the big boxes they roll in that have rack mounts in them where you have different things in the rack for the the sound engineer to work with, She had a whole rack that was just auto tune, just to make her sound decent.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, her sort of physical appearance probably had as much to do with with, uh, her popularity than it was her musical talent. So the auto-tune just sort of created the musical talent, augmented what God gave her in the way of of uh, her attractiveness, shall we say, from a physical perspective, to turn that into a successful recording artist—that's one way to look at it. <laughs> a friend of mine on the uh, on my phone here said, "Well, Earth, Wind, and Fire a lot like Chicago." Well, that's true. With these, as far as the the horn section being a big part of the of the sound. It's true. And I don't know if you'd call their genre music, would that be rock and roll, soul? I'm not sure. What would you call that? It's fairly unique. Um, and a number... Like it falls firmly under pop. Yeah, that's good. But yeah.
2: pop is one of those genres that moves around a lot as yeah, trends
1: true. change. That's true. I guess today maybe even some of the crazy rap would that be considered in the umbrella of pop? I don't know. Some of it, yeah. Well, it is September, you know, and we haven't played the Earth, Wind & Fire tune September. we got to do that. No doubt about it. Do y'all believe Tate will agree to debate Brandon Presley, says Dwight? I don't know. I doubt it. I think polls show that uh, the governor as a relatively comfortable lead at this point. And I got to tell you guys, I I have told you before I subscribed to Brandon Presley's uh, email notices and and just it's it's more they're more in the style of a campaign press release, I guess is a good way to put it. And uh, and I have since uh, I mean he he entered the race and I I just like to keep up, but I, I would say that 9 out of 10 of the releases are are just huge uh, chastising statements, <laughs> statements that chastise the governor, just lambast the governor about all this supposed waste of money and and... In fraud and involvement in the TANF scandal, and the latest uh, deals with using public money to renovate the governor's mansion. Well, okay, I uh, isn't the governor's mansion a property that's owned? by the taxpayers, funded by the taxpayers, and should we just let it deteriorate, or should we maintain it? And wasn't a lot of that actually funded by private dollars, It's my understanding, a lot of what what, um, goes on there in the mansion from a uh, renovation and decoration perspective of the house itself? I just don't know that um, that really factors in to voters' decisions. And I think the other thing that hits me, and, and I may be different in this respect, you guys tell me, but when every single day, it seems, it's, it's frequently, it's regularly, Brandon Presley attacks the governor on his alleged involvement in the TANF scandal, it starts to lose its credibility because it's just another way to state the attacks and frame the attacks and communicate it without any empirical evidence whatsoever. And I guess from my perspective as a Mississippian who has a vested interest in the, those who were elected to office, especially the highest office in the state, that of the governor, what are you going to do for the states? What I want to hear, I haven't seen much about that. I'd say Other than
2: lies that he's going to expand Medicaid with the stroke of a pen on day one.
1: Which, which is not possible. That's not possible under the law. The governor does not have the exclusive unilateral authority to enter the state of Mississippi into that program. That is beyond the purview of the governor's office, And, and if for no other reason, because it requires appropriation of significant dollars to fund the state's portion of expansion of the program. And the governor does not have the sole authority to spend taxpayer money like that. Now, can the governor and the Division of Medicaid work within the parameters of the existing program to tune and tweak coverage and and reimbursement models and, and things like that? Absolutely. And that all is... For the most part, dictated by federal law, because the federal government's paying for three quarters of it, in Mississippi. So you're you're limited, you're constrained by that, and you can apply for waivers. There's a whole process where a state can apply for waivers for certain aspects, and sometimes the federal government approves those, sometimes they turn them down. But the fact is, that's where the majority of the money's coming from. The governor cannot just say, yep, we're expanding Medicaid day one. But it is true. What you're saying is that candidate Brandon Presley has declared that he will do that on the first days in office, except he can't. And this is another situation where candidates for office make these promises they simply cannot keep. It happens at all levels. In all parties, by the way, it's not unique to him, but that is uh, has been one of the few areas I can think about where he said more affirmatively what I'm going to do uh, eliminate corruption. You know, he's and he's got some. Yes, that's the ultimate irony: running as a Democrat, <laughs> and of course, he's made the statement that he would he would install a person who quote. Wore a badge to run Department of Public Safety. He would install a a physician, a medical doctor, an MD, to run Medicaid. Said that. But I haven't heard a lot. For example, he said he would eliminate the grocery sales tax. I have seen that, but I haven't seen a lot of chatter or discussion in any of his campaign materials or speeches or these press releases about how to scale and grow the state's economy. I haven't seen that. And I see that rather regularly out of the governor, and I know that's been a huge area of focus for him since he's been in office, and by all accounts, you'd have to say succeeded in that respect. They're Many successes that we could point to over the last four years uh, in Mississippi, the governor would freely admit we got more work to do. He knows that, but he also understands. I believe, and in getting to know him pretty well, that that is the path to the best outcomes and best opportunities in the state of Mississippi is to grow the economy. And honestly, Rhino, the same as at the federal level. You never hear about that. All they want to do is recut the pie. You give up some of your money and give it to them. That's their idea of economic development. We're stepping aside for a break. Half an hour left in this hour on middays.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Welcome back, everyone, middays. I have no idea what the lyrics mean, by the way. I've read them, and I've (laughs) tried to connect the dots. I can't. Maybe somewhere somebody is... You just haven't read them under the influence of the correct chemicals. (laughs) Are you suggesting Jimi Hendrix may have been under the influence? No. Oh, gosh. He only dipped his headband in it. Oh. A life snuffed out way too soon by the addiction and abuse of drugs. Incredibly talented, man. Unbelievable. 27, right? I believe. Unbelievable. That, of course, was the great Dave Mason, who had a head full of hair back when he <laughs> recorded that tune. He is bald as a cue ball. Now, I follow him on social media. Still, still performs. I don't think he's recording anything new. Also incredibly talented. If I'm not mistaken, was in the band Traffic with Steve Winwood. Isn't that right? Yep. How talented was that group? Little did we know at the time. Before his, he embarked upon his solo career was Dave Mason. On the ceasefire text line, uh, Tower of Power. Yeah, I used to play the drums to some Tower of Power. I think the song I really liked to play it was hard. I wasn't really good at it. What I tried. Was what is hip? Names the tower of power too. But that's that's true. Great horn section, blood, sweat, and tears as well. Tim from Dupelo says Journey had a sax back in the eighties. Don't think so. Pretty familiar with all the Journey discography. Don't think there was ever a sax. That uh, you'd have to tell me what songs, what what albums. Man, I think I've listened to them all, watched videos of all the live performances of most of their music, and certainly in all their history, I don't see any reference to any band members that pay the, play the sax. You looking? I don't think so. But no doubt, sax players, I tell you, there's a good sax, I, I don't know if you call them riffs, or they call riffs when they're sax, what would that be called? No, Melody? Um, Lot of Love by Nicolette Larson. Great sax in that one, by the way. Good video showing the sax player. Got a white hat on. Pretty cool. I still maintain that the uh,
2: most famous sax line is careless whisper.
1: Yeah, that is good. Wham! What do you well, Now, what are you saying? You mean the music itself? The melody of it's the It's just, just
2: the most recognizable sax line for multiple I, generations.
1: I agree. And uh, I believe when they were together, George Michael, Andrew Ridley was the name? The pair? The group Wham! before Michael went out on his own? Yeah, Andrew Ridgely. Ridgely, okay. From England. And uh, that was their big hit, Careless Whisper." was that, about 1983, 84, I think? Was yeah,
2: recorded in 83 in London and released July of 84. Top top
1: hit, big time. That's back when uh, MTV was a big thing, and they actually showed music videos. And it is a pretty cool video, like many of them were back then. It was fun. On the C Spire text line, Johnny in West Point, what's the truth about the supposed scandal? We certainly don't know. I mean, I I think we're talking about the TANF scandal. I I think, like everyone else, we don't have any inside information here. If that's what the question is, I think like everyone else, we're trying to consume all the all the details. Which all, would be
2: easier if the people reporting on it didn't have an axe to grind.
1: And that's part of the problem. I mean, the
2: only people reporting on it have an axe to grind.
1: Seems like it. Now, I don't think there's any question that there was abuse and misuse of funds, and we have people who were actually paying the price for that from a legal perspective, and and were um, – have they been through the trials? I don't even know what the status I haven't been keeping up with it. I, I think pled guilty, though, if I'm not mistaken. And there, no doubt there was impropriety. Absolutely. The – question is, to what extent were any state elected officials beyond those such as the individual at the Department of Human Services, who was appointed by the governor, but there's this point, not that I'm aware of, no empirical evidence. And there will continue, I guess, to be investigations and work to get to the truth. But at this point, I hesitate to make a call on that. I just don't, not a, a, availed of all the facts. And we still don't have all the facts. That's why there's an investigation ongoing. So I don't know. But certainly um, someone said something about that uh, on the c text line. Who was that earlier? Oh, it's Dwight. Dwight is one of those individuals that seems to have an axe to grind, as you indicated a minute ago. There's no way, says Dwight, y'all believe Tate is clean in the scandal. His brother tried to evade public records to help him out. Tate is very corrupt, much like Biden. Well, at
2: least we finally got Dwight to accept the fact (laughs) that Biden is corrupt. corrupt. (laughs) The rest of his statement was asinine, but at least we got him to admit Biden is corrupt.
1: Oh, gosh. Then why aren't the Republicans in the media reporting on it all? At all. Well, uh, I, I mean, I've seen reports. What do you want to report on? There's been reports on what's, I, th- I think, been confirmed as fact. There, I don't know that there's much to report on when it's just rumor, innuendo, speculation, allegation. Sure, you could, I guess, report on that, but I think many of those Dwight people...
2: Dwight has a fundamental disconnect with reality. I mean, look at his previous take. The governor, the governor can call a special session to expand it. Tate won't do that. <laughs> the governor can't vote for the legislators. He can call a special session to say that the sky is green. It doesn't mean the legislature is going to vote to say yes.
1: Yeah, and see... Uh, This is something I think you're right, that's that's missing in that discussion about calling a special session. Any prudent, responsible governor, and I believe Governor Reeves is one, ain't going to call a special session to bring all these folks into Jackson and spend a bunch of money doing it to accomplish nothing. They're pretty good about counting votes, as they say, and they know that that's not an issue that would be resolved in a short period of time and get across the finish line. Therefore, no special session. Now, if the legislature wants to deliberate, we're talking about Medicaid expansion specifically, if they want to deliberate and debate this issue, which I think they will, have been to at least a some minor extent since expansion was made available in 2014, by the way under the Affordable Care Act. And all expansion does, just to refresh your memory again, is it just adds the coverage group of able-bodied adults whose income is less than hundred and thirty-eight percent of the federal poverty level, and that that clocks in at about twenty thousand dollars a year for an individual. That's all it really does. Presently, able-bodied adults, regardless of their income, are not eligible for um, benefits under Medicaid, for Medicaid coverage. So that's what that's all about. And I do think it'll be uh, debated. Uh, I've said before many times that um, I don't believe that Medicaid expansion would cure the ills, no pun intended there. In the healthcare industry in our state, and in fact, the healthcare industry nationwide, is suffering mightily from a financial perspective. And heck, on this program, I've dug up financial statements of some of the hospitals in the state and shared those with the audience. And it's uh, it's a little, little shocking, but the vast majority of them are cash flow negative. They're bleeding money and it depends on the the revenue mix if most of their revenue comes from private coverage they fare pretty well most of it comes from medicare and or medicaid they don't it's just simple as that that's because reimbursement rates are significantly lower than those of private coverage which in the state of mississippi our private coverage for the most part, reimburses at lower levels than do our neighboring states. That, that's a problem as well. So, uh, Dwight, I, I think you need to think a little bit more about the process and the, the legal process of enacting legislation. I, I know, unfortunately, that most Democrats just believe that that's just in the way of advancing their agenda. It's the old Barack Obama, I got a pen and a phone, and that Constitution gets in the way, and all that sort of stuff. Most of us on the right think pretty highly of the Constitution and our rule of law. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio.
0: You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Folks call me a maverick. Guess I ain't too diplomatic. I just never been the kind to of go along. Just avoiding confrontation for the sake of confirmation. And I'll admit I tend to sing a different song. Sometimes you just can't be afraid. Wear different hat. Columbus had to fly. This old world might still be... Welcome back, everyone, middays. Sometimes you On the C Spire text line, yeah, a couple people reminded that Bob Dylan actually wrote the song All Along the Watchtower, and that was, uh, of course, he recorded it, but made more famous by Jimi Hendrix. It ranks as... Really one of the top songs ever recorded, honestly. We're still playing it today by Jimi Hendrix. And then Dave Mason did as well, somewhere along the line in his recording career. Dylan, uh, I read a little bit on the break about the story behind the song. Dylan says that he had been in a motorcycle accident 18 months before he recorded the uh, studio album John Wesley Harding in 1967. Hmm. That's interesting. He didn't know that. and he, uh, he said it was three recording sessions to record the entire album. And that was a bit in contrast to the times when most artists spend weeks in the studio. Didn't have all the technology you do today, of course, to piece together uh, albums. And he said that it was inspired by the Beatles' Peppers album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, released it December 17th, 1967. The lyrics of All Along the Watchtower were debated because it's just weird. And, of course, the line in there about the joker and the thief. That really got everybody's attention. In the first verse, the joker explains to the thief he wants to escape his situation because it confuses him and provides no relief. That's what the lyrics say, said the joker to the thief. I don't know. Sounds like some chemical-induced stuff to me. (laughs) That's what you said earlier, huh? The band were all multi-instrumental. Yeah, the band, the band is what is being referred to here, and played horn instruments. Yeah, I think you're right. Adam and Madison points out Baker Street, of course. The great Jerry Rafferty, another recognizable saxophone intro. I agree. really is. And the YouTube video of Rafferty recording that or performing it live with the sax player in the background is pretty intriguing to watch as well. It's pretty neat. Was it Bill or Monica that played the sax? That would be Bill. Oh, gotcha. Slick Willie. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, there's some. I remember some video of that back in the day. Right, played the played the sax. Monica played a different instrument. Right. Gerard, is it still projected that the Medicaid role will double if expansion occurs? What will this cost the state? It? That's D.W. Madison. No, it's net that's never been projected, D.W. So it, we we um we certainly uh it, it's fair and it's it is um I think prudent to debate the issue, but we gotta do it with a fact. So it is estimated uh, that Medicaid expansion would make the program available to some 150 to 200,000 citizens in Mississippi. It's difficult to pin down the exact number, uh, and that's mainly because it, it's based on their income, and you'd have to go through the taxpayer rolls to figure that out. And then you'd have to also know whether or not they're able-bodied, and whether or not they have insurance through their employer, or they're in the uh, the private individual market. So there's lots of different factors, but it's estimated 150 to 200 thousand. So just so you know, DW the the present rolls of Medicaid are upwards of 800 thousand. Now what should get all of our attention is that if we did expand Medicare, and by the way, we got to 800000 because of a bill passed into law in 2020 signed by President Donald Trump that um, included what's called the continuous enrollment provision, and basically all it did was, as part of all these trillions of dollars of COVID helicopter money, It increased the federal government's reimbursement to states, all states, for Medicaid under the condition that the states would not disenroll anyone for some period of time uh, once they're on Medicaid or anyone presently on Medicaid, even if they are no longer eligible. And we're just starting the unwinding and disenrollment process now. It's been underway for about two and a half months in Mississippi, and the federal government's also going to reduce the reimbursement as well as part of that. So talk more about that uh, after the break, and that's what's coming up next.
0: We got Emily Grabley
1: Back. It is the afternoon portion of Middays. We are live in the Element Wealth Studio. We thank you so much for joining us. We welcome to the program Emily Gravely. Did I pronounce it correct, Emily? Is it Gravely or Gravely?
4: It is Gravely. You pronounced it perfectly.
1: Okay, great. Emily Gravely, fourth year Ole Miss doctoral student in pharmacy administration at the University of Mississippi. So, We've seen some reports uh, about some pharmacies being reluctant to dispense naloxone. I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Tell tell us about that. What's, What's this drug used for, what's its purpose, and why are there concerns about it?
4: Sure. So naloxone is a medication that can actually reverse an opioid overdose. So we know that opioid overdoses have been rising across Mississippi. So this medication is an opportunity to prevent a death potentially from an opioid overdose. So what we did in our study is we looked at naloxone availability under our state standing order for naloxone. And we found that about 37% of all pharmacies had naloxone and were willing to dispense it under the standing order. And about 40% were unwilling to dispense it under the standing order. Hmm.
1: And, and so what, what are the concerns? Is it, is it causing problems? Is it just uh, not acting as it is intended? Uh, a little of both? <laughs>
4: Well, so what we know is we have enacted legislation in our state to make naloxone available under a state standing order. So what that state standing order means is that a patient can go to the pharmacy and they should be able to ask the pharmacist for naloxone and receive it under a standing prescription through the State Department of Health. So you don't have to go see a healthcare provider Mm -hmm. to get naloxone. And we did this, obviously, to increase access to naloxone across the state. We, we really wanted it to be available to people. And so what our study found is that maybe it's not as available as we hoped it would be under that state standing order.
3: Hmm.
1: Okay, so uh, what's, what's uh, causing the, the supply chain challenges?
4: So I'm not sure exactly about any supply chain challenges. Okay. I don't know if I can speak to those. Okay. Yeah, but as far as reasons that okay. you know pharmacies don't have it, um, we found that about 40 percent, you know, that 40 percent of pharmacies were unwilling to dispense it under the state standing order, and of those 40 percent. Seventy-five percent said that a patient required a prescription. So this really seems like it may be an education issue okay. around the standing order in our state.
1: So it's not really a, a, a shortage or the uh, any problems in the supply chain uh, as it pertains to the ability to just produce the drug itself. It's just more a matter of, of pharmacists just uh, being reluctant, being hesitant uh, to dispense it. Is that true?
4: Potentially. And I mean... So, potentially. I think one of the things that our study did is it described access to naloxone. But aside from that information we have um, about some pharmacists not appearing to know or some pharmacies not appearing to dispense under the standing order, okay. we can't really provide any additional insight into why we're seeing what we're seeing.
1: Okay. So, was was this actually some, some research that uh, you did personally that uh, the department did, that the School of Pharmacy did at Ole Miss to to, um, dig up all this information about the hesitancy of pharmacists and pharmacies across the state? How did that come about?
4: So this was actually my uh, master's thesis project. So this is something that I conceptualized, and, uh, you know, my department supported me. But uh, I spearheaded the project and had quite a few School of Pharmacy students helping me to complete it.
1: Okay. Gotcha. So as part of that process, did you interview pharmacists and and pharmacy, uh, the, the business people themselves? or How, how did you uh, get this information?
4: Sure. So what was really neat about this study is that it was actually a secret shopper study. Hmm. So we had a list of kind of open-door community pharmacies in the state, and we would call the pharmacies and ask them if they had naloxone available. Okay. So we had, you know, 591 pharmacies that we called and we collected data from, but uh, the key is they didn't know we were collecting their data at the time. So this project really took on that patient perspective. If I were a patient who needed naloxone, could I get it at this pharmacy? Um, So that was fun, um, exciting, and really gave us that insight into that patient piece, I think.
1: So, it appears that in your research that some pharmacists were unaware of the standing order and others had some reluctance just based on their, their view that the drug is only uh, designed for use by addicts and abusers. Is that true?
4: So my research didn't find that okay. uh, what we did find again. So 37% had it available. So on hand and willing to dispense under the standing order and that 40% that had it unavailable, that was unavailable under the standing order to yep. our you know, mystery caller that was calling their pharmacy. And again, unless they provided us any information as to why, They didn't make naloxone available under the standing order. We didn't have it. But again, I will reiterate that 75% of that 40% said that we needed a prescription. So I Hmm. think that this speaks more to an awareness issue. You know, what can I do under the standing order? What is the standing order? And how can I use it to help my patients? So I think that's more of what our research pointed to.
1: So as a result of your findings, are are you now... Uh, or, or authorities, I guess, uh, boards. Are they going to communicate this and try to educate pharmacies and pharmacists about this, just, just for clarity? <laughs>
3: That is what
4: we hoped would happen with this research. So we have uh, I have spoken with the Mississippi State Department of Health. Um, I visited um, a drug utilization review board for the Mississippi Division of Medicaid last week to talk a little bit about this and kind of promote that idea that maybe we do need more education of our pharmacists if we really want the standing order to work as well as it can for the people of Mississippi.
1: Okay. So... Uh, but is it, is it only for the purpose, this particular drug, for those who have abused drugs, experienced some sort of reaction to that drug abuse, some sort of uh, physical problem, clinical problem, and they need uh, this drug to uh, counteract that?
4: So I will say naloxone is for any opioid overdose. It's not necessarily just for people who use opioid drugs illicitly. Okay. Uh, so it may be someone who has a prescription medication for an opioid. Uh, maybe they've forgotten they took too much on accident. Naloxone could save their life. Okay. Maybe they're a grandparent who has chronic pain and an opioid prescription, and they have grandchildren who visit their home regularly. So this is for any opioid overdose and not just for people who use drugs.
1: Okay, thanks for that clarification. I get it. Well, I, And I got that from the, the press release that I saw. I, I guess it's a press release. The statement about that where some pharmacists believe that it's only for addicts and abusers, and there's some hesitancy as a result of that stigma. And and that's why I asked that question. But you point out, no, there there are folks that have legally been prescribed uh, opioids for, for various ailments, and, and they run the risk of possible, possibly um, overdosing, I guess, on those and, and causing problems. And um, naloxone can help them with that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, that, that makes sense. So sounds to me like it's more of an, an education need than anything else. But I I gotta believe. I mean, you're you're studying this, and you're you're about to be out in the world. I assume practicing as a as a pharmacist. uh, That this is constant because we're constantly inventing our pharmaceutical manufacturers new drugs, and they're complicated. And there's all sorts of things you need to know about that. That's the purpose of pharmacist and their dispensing. I mean, I think most people listening would say, yeah, I've, I've gone to pick up a prescription, and you're always asked and typically have to sign off. Do you need um, advice? Do you need counsel on this? And and it's their job to help you and also make sure you don't have some other issue with uh, taking other prescriptions or other drugs um, or other lifestyles that may conflict and cause problems. Is that true? Just, just checking.
4: Um, so I will say, you know, pharmacists, I, I am a pharmacist, by the way. Uh, so okay. pharmacists do, you know, have information about drugs and medication interactions, and they can counsel patients on how to take medications appropriately and can even potentially recommend naloxone under the standing order to patients.
1: Okay. I got you. Well, this is fascinating, and we appreciate you coming on and explaining this, and I hope hope we continue to communicate and educate the pharmacy community in the state of Mississippi so we can get on board and do the right thing. Appreciate you joining us, Emily. Thanks a lot.
4: Yeah, thanks so much. If I can say one more thing, the Mississippi State Department of Health has actually made naloxone available free to people, so if you go to odfree.org, you can get a free naloxone kit through the State Department of Health. It's so
0: awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbet. Come on, let's get on with the show on Super Talk, Mississippi. (laughs)
1: Last Sunday morning, the sunshine, Little Almond Brothers. Well, that was fascinating from uh, Emily Gravely, and uh, if she's still listening, I certainly didn't mean to uh, insult by—I didn't know where she was in her in her um, pursuit of becoming a pharmacist. So, do you? How does that work, Rhino? Can you achieve that designation without receiving your PhD? Or is that a, is a PhD degree or? Yeah. I
2: mean, once you get to the later years, I think it's year three, and then ultimately year four of pharmacy school, you are working in pharmacies as a part of your education in the role of pharmacist. Usually you have another pharmacist with you that has graduated and has practiced as a, a mentor, but you're, you're doing everything that a pharmacist would do as a part of your education. So, yeah, it, it, they're dispensing pills. They're consulting patients. They're checking to make sure that there aren't any contraindications.
1: So do you have to be certified by the board, pass exams, to be able to do that? Yeah, or? to get to the later years of pharmacy school. I see. So you have to do that?
2: It's kind of like you have med students that are in their later years of medical school that are residences, where they, they're working in a residency, and they're they're performing all the... the Skills required of being a doctor mm-hmm. without technically having the title doctor. Okay, and that's
1: legally permissible. Yes, I mean they as they're, a part
2: of the educational process.
1: Okay, but are they under the supervision even as a resident of someone that that is board certified MD? Is that a requirement, or can they practice?
2: I don't think they can have a separate practice on their own, but, yeah, they're they're allowed to pretty much be a doctor in a hospital, in just a hospital. like a, a fourth-year pharmacy student is allowed to work in a pharmacy as a pharmacist.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So, I, I was just, I wasn't sure, you know, how the progression worked, and, uh, but, obviously, you could tell uh, from from speaking with us, Clinicals, that's
2: the word I was thinking, trying to think of. Place okay. The internet of clinicals.
1: That. Ms. Gravely is a very bright young lady, and we, we wish her um, all the success in the world. But the, the article and the uh, research she did is, is fascinating, and, and the press release is what we were provided here about her work. And uh, it does seem like there's more of a communication issue than anything else, perhaps, in the pharmacy community. And she made a point to end, yeah, not sure if folks caught it, but just to repeat it, that um, the drug is available – through the Department of Health, I didn't catch the details right at the end how one avails themselves of the drug uh, naloxone, but she did say it was available through the Mississippi Department of Health. I yeah, you go to
0: means.
2: odfree.org.
1: Okay, for more information. So, so what happens here? You you've you've taken too many opioids. Your body's reacting negatively to that. You ingest this drug.
2: Yeah, it's usually it, a nasal spray.
1: Okay, and it counteracts whatever the the consumption of too much of the opioids doing to you.
2: Yeah, not to get too wonky, and I'm not a pharmacist, so if a pharmacist is listening and I'm wrong, please correct me. But from my understanding, naloxone is what's called an opioid antagonist. You can think of an antagonist as being the bad guy in a movie. Yeah. An opioid antagonist, and I explained it on the text line to someone from the 662, in football terms, it's like the opioid is an aggressive blitzing defense. Your system is the quarterback. Naloxone acts like a well-trained, well-oiled machine O-line that blocks the blitzing defense from getting to the quarterback long enough for them to get the ball off. Getting the ball off is getting to the ER where the doctors can can
1: treat you. Okay. Well that's a good point you make. So it's not like, hey, you do this and you're you're fixed, essentially. No. You this just kind of temporarily, uh I guess delays the bad stuff that would happen if you don't take it, right? Gives yeah. you time to get somewhere where you can get further treatment to reverse those effects and address that. Man, that makes sense. Okay. So and and that's what it was designed for. Essentially by time, right? I mean that's what all those sorts of Drug overdose kind of antidotes are, 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 are built around the concept, is it not? Just to buy time, for the most part, uh, so that you can get the treatment you need to resolve the situation. That, that makes sense. We've been talking about uh, music this morning, having some fun with that. It's, it's good sometimes to divert from the thorny issues of public policy and cultural matters. Careless Whisper is my niece's walkout song in softball at Mize High School, says Neil from McGee. That's pretty cool. Check the saxophone on Urgent by Foreigner, Mike in Biloxi. Yep, that is pretty cool. Carolyn Starkville reports that she's been busy with someone who's experiencing some medical problems and missing us. We appreciate that and hope... uh, Everything goes well. You're at UAB, uh, what Carol says, University of Alabama, Birmingham Medical Center. Fantastic Um, medical facility institution. Great teaching institution as well. I think has one of the top cardiology programs in the country, if I'm not mistaken. That's kind of what they're known for. From the 601, the
2: hosts have pharmacy degrees completely wrong and have now likely confused all lay people listening. Well, then explain it to us. Yeah. Yeah, I worked in a pharmacy. We had pharmacy students come and work, and they were basically acting like pharmacists. They had to consult with patients. They checked pills. They did. Pers- I mean, they did everything else a pharmacist would do.
1: What was I wrong about? Leslie in Grenada says it's called clinicals. You pointed that out. They will be supervised by the pharmacist. Clinical are part of the end of the education, and then you will take your boards. Okay. I felt. I thought that's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, we apologize. We weren't trying to confuse people about that, and I'm pretty sure that anybody that's that, uh, is pursuing the profession of pharmacy will know all that stuff cold. <laughs> so we're we're not certainly trying to be an information source of that. We're just talking about it. I I I just felt bad because I said something to Miss Gravely during the interview about becoming a pharmacist, and she just corrected me and said, "Well, I already am one," and I I don't know how it works and that's fine I and I don't think she took any offense to it um I, but I just wanted to clear the air and and ensure that I was in no way trying to to um, um, be insulting I, that wasn't my I just didn't know what the what the sequence is I'm sure it's um relatively complicated um but I thought you explained it in a way that made sense to me so just let us know um, whomever sent us a text that said we confused people. Certainly weren't trying to do that, and I don't believe that's the case. Have you mentioned the sax intro on Turn the Page by Bob Seeger? Have not, says Louis from the 662. No, I think that's good. And, I, and by the way, my point about a Chicago was they had, they had a horn section. They had more than just the sax. They had trombone, trumpet. They had the trio, the brass trio. I just remember them as being kind of one of the early, really popular rock bands that featured that. I mean, you had really hardcore electric guitar in Terry Kath, considered, who also, I believe, died of a drug overdose, by the way, uh, prematurely at in, in a young age. But you had that, plus a horn section, and keyboards and vocals. they pretty unique. Sound. That's the only point I was trying to make. And I thought about earth, wind, and fire. And so, But it's good discussion. It's fun. But, yeah, you're right. I think there's a lot of music that includes sax. It's a pretty popular instrument. It's woven into a, a lot of big hits. But full horn section. kind of falling out of style. Yeah, not anymore. I would agree. And I, I don't know if there's still a lot of interest in that. I don't know. At the, at the, the level where kids start to play band. Participate in BAN in school. Uh, let's see. How, uh, Larry I what are you saying? How can we have Republican governors and lieutenant governors for years now and still have all these liberal policies at our schools and universities? Not really sure what you're talking about specifically, Larry, but, you know, if you look at the way that policies are made that dictate curricula, in the schools. Some of that is done at the Board of Education state level. Some of that's done at the district level, and that's done by school boards, to a great extent, that are elected by the people in that district. And then at the university level, I mean, those, those curriculum are, are created by the university and, I believe, the faculty and, and others in the IHL are involved in that. Uh, I honestly don't know all of the nuance around that. But then there's, you know, something, Larry, known as academic freedom. And the idea there is that, and and you pointed that out a couple of days ago, I believe, Rhino, about the purpose of tenure was to prevent someone from just getting terminated simply because they expressed their views as as an instructor at the college level. Problem is, all too much of the time, it's all one-sided tainted to one philosophical direction. Coming right back. Stay with us.
0: We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You
3: need to listen to this.
0: Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Text line, what about blood, sweat, and tears? Yeah, it's another very uh, successful group that had a brass section. Yeah. I don't really believe they had quite the hard-hitting electric guitar that Terry Gath uh, played for Chicago. That's really kind of what I was referring to is, man. He was uh, He's really something. By the way, I said he overdosed. I was wrong. He actually accidentally committed suicide in a gun accident. However, it was well known that he had a problem with drugs and alcohol that um, folks around him, like his bandmates said, impaired his judgment. Take that for what it's worth. So it's likely that contributed to uh, the accident, but it wasn't a drug overdose specifically that uh, was the cause of death. Uh, So on the C-SPIRE text line, there, uh, let's see, there was somebody that sent us a pretty good description here, Rhino, that is a pharmacist. It was Bradford. Bradford, there you go. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So said they're considered pharmacy interns, once they have completed all the clinicals, their clinicals, they'll have the required number of hours by the Board of Pharmacy to take the boards. Okay, so what that indicates is you've, you've got to complete whatever the number of hours is as part of the clinicals process before you can take the exam, right? And Which be, that's
2: the whole fourth year of pharmacy school
1: is clinicals. Okay, and that's what you said. So. Uh, They cannot get their pharmacy license until they take the North American Pharmacist Licensure Examination. So the acronym is NAPLEX. Once they pass that, they also have to take a pharmacy law exam specific for the state they want to practice in, which is why it's something that's regulated at the state level typically by a pharmacy board, right, in each state. Makes sense. Once they pass that, they will be licensed in that state. And by the way, CPA law licenses, uh, other engineering licenses, professional sort of licenses like that, work the same way. You're licensed in a state. Heck, even real estate, right? You're licensed, as I understand it, um, to be a real estate broker, sell, buy real estate professionally. If they want to get licensed in another state, they will have to take that state's pharmacy law exam. I am a pharmacist licensed in Mississippi, Tennessee, and Alabama. That's Bradford and Blue Springs, and we appreciate the the uh, explanation there, Bradford. It sounds fairly consistent to what you were saying, though. So, but it does make sense how Miss Gravely could be at the point she is and be a pharmacist. That makes total sense. It makes Makes total sense. Appreciate that. Uh, the fourth year of pharmacy, just like Rhino said, Bradford goes on to say, is nothing but pharmacy rotations, in parentheses, clinicals, designed to help the pharmacy intern obtain the hours required by the Board of Pharmacy to take the exam. Uh, yeah, okay. So it's just, it's part of the curriculum when one is in pharmacy school. P school, as we called it when I was at all this. At the B school, where I spent my time, in the P school, cross campus there. Got it. Makes total sense. Appreciate that, Bradford. So, hopefully our person that jumped on us about confusing people is, okay, now, we weren't trying to confuse anybody, my gosh, and we're certainly not promoting ourselves. You made it very clear. You're not a practicing pharmacist, it's just what your understanding was, but you worked in that environment, so you do certainly know more about it than I do, Um, and we were just trying to pass that on because we had a guest coming from that environment. Uh, let's see here. Same way for funeral service licensure. Yeah, and, I, and and that's I think fairly standard in our country in that licensing, professional licensing, is done at the state and regulated at the state level. Now, I personally think that we go a little overboard on that. We maybe have some things that don't need to be licensed. Don't re- should not require. Professional licensing, you know, we we had uh, in the past, there are examples of folks in Mississippi that just wanted to braid hair, and they were making them jump through a million hoops. that had nothing to do with that to obtain certain licenses just for the privilege of providing hair braiding services, as an example. So it's a fine line between, you know, when should the government require these licenses for practice and when does it go overboard? And it needs to be, I think, constantly evaluated and and considered for reform as it makes sense. Did I real? Did I read a while back that Mississippi would now recognize teacher certification from other states? I'm not sure that the reciprocation process is always something that is interesting from. Uh, a perspective of attracting new residents. You guys may have seen, if you haven't, South Dakota, where Governor Kristi Noem is uh, is 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 the at the highest level office in the state. She personally has been featured in television commercials, which are designed to attract people to move to South Dakota. She says, "We need workers." We've got lots of expansion of our economy. We need people across a spectrum of professional disciplines. And one of the points she makes in in, uh, the ad uh, discusses South Dakota's licensing reciprocation. I don't think she goes into details about all of the various licenses that are eligible for reciprocation, but that, that's one of the the features of uh, of the ad is hey come to South Dakota we need you and by the way we'll recognize your license in other states. I can't answer that question. It's a good one. I do that's William and Brandon. I do know we have talked about that. I want to say Rhino back when the teacher pay raise was front and center in the legislature, but I I don't recall that that we changed the process to allow a teacher who is licensed. I want to say maybe, see if you remember this, and some folks I'm sure out there know this as well, maybe it's it's something that has to do with if the standards are at least equal to ours or greater. We recognize it, but if they're not, and I don't know who makes that call, if they're not, well, no, you'd have to be uh, licensed in our state. It seems like if it's at least at that level, that seems to kind of stick out in my brain uh, when we were discussing all that. But it, it certainly makes sense when you're trying to uh, attract people into, um, into your state. She's also the prettiest governor on the C tax line, talking about Christy Nome, who certainly appeared to be positioning herself as a vice presidential candidate to Donald Trump, running for president. She, by the way, even said, yeah, if he, if he called on me to join the ticket, I'm all in. She actually said that over the weekend. Law enforcement starting to do the same thing. I assume that has to do with, um, oh, that's on the ceasefire tax line, has to do with the licensing reciprocation. Well, it, it makes sense, total sense. You, you need people you need to start to get creative, essentially. And you can, I think, do that without compromising standards and licensing reciprocation where it makes sense wouldn't make sense to reinvent the wheel over and over again in my view so yeah
2: the one thing i've found on the reciprocity is the national association of state directors of teacher education and certification has an interstate agreement and it appears that mississippi has reciprocity with licensure for educators With 45 states.
1: Okay. All right. So, and I think it's based on the fact that their standards and the licensing process is is at least equal to or greater than ours, and where it's felt that doesn't stack up, uh, we don't reciprocate. Makes sense. Ben from Madison says Becky Curry sponsored some legislation to what you were kind of describing, if I remember correctly. I do seem to remember that as well. Thank you for that, Ben. Also Ben says Governor Sanders in Arkansas understands how to promote her state. seems like Arkansas has had has really changed their public image in the last 10 or so years. And, and I think the reason we know, we see that Ben or we or maybe you, you feel that way and, and I agree with you is that they're invested some money in some national advertising just like South Dakota is Christy No I mean that's national advertising. Hey, come to South Dakota. things are booming here. We need workers. We will recognize your licenses in certain categories from other states. I mean, all that's just getting attention, and that is a way to change image. And by the way, I do believe and agree that the state of Mississippi could benefit from a national campaign in that respect. I don't don't know how much that's been discussed and tossed about. In the halls of government and those who would be responsible for that, MDA, for example, which, of course, is a government agency, Mississippi Development Authority. I honestly felt like we should have done that when the flag was changed. I think we should have made a really big deal out of that and promoted the heck out of that. Badfinger, one of my favorite groups, bumping us out of this segment. Stay with us. Final is coming after the break. the final segment of Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Larry I says, I read somewhere that after the teachers got a $5,000 a year pay raise, we still lost 25% of our teachers, proving throwing money at things is not always the answer. Larry, I check your, the credibility of your source, man. 25%. That would be almost 9,000 teachers. We didn't lose 9,000 teachers. Not even remotely close. So I'm not sure where you where you got that from, but you know if if I gave raises to people as an employer and I lost them after I gave them a raise, if I had a a, a huge uh, attrition like that, I'd want to know why for sure. But I can pretty much assure you that unless it's a really poor work environment, bad culture, uncomfortable uh, uh, setting, probably money has a lot to do with it. That tells me the raise wasn't enough. That's usually what happens, honestly. Now, it's absolutely true that when folks consider their satisfaction at work, their job satisfaction pays not all there is to that. Most research shows that it's their direct supervisor has as much to do with job satisfaction as anything, who they, who they report to, who they work for. And then you look at some of the other qualitative aspects of a company. All that factors in, but pretty high on the list there is the comp, is the pay. Now, I guess I'm assuming, Larry, that you oppose the pay raises for the teachers that the state of Mississippi uh, just implemented. So I, I guess the question is, how much do you think they ought to make? And have you have you got any details about, okay, if we paid this amount, this is um, what the ranks of teachers would look like in terms of just numbers that would seek the profession, and then what would the quality look like, and how much would that cost the state if the quality of teaching were even lower than it is now in certain circumstances in certain schools and districts? He says he thinks he heard it on WLBT. I, I don't know where they got their data from. That that would be national news, honestly. If, if we lost a quarter of our teachers? That'd be national news. So I'll, I'll see what I can find out about that. And if, what did they attribute it to? I guess, Larry, if that's the case, if we lost 9,000 teachers, what do they attribute that to? Did they say hey, the pay wasn't enough or I just don't want to do this anymore? There are other issues. With all the national news about Jackson's water issues, says Sam from Mount Hermon, do you think that has an effect on people moving to Mississippi if they can get that right? What does that say for the whole state? No, I, I do think that that projected negatively on the state. I do believe that many people outside of Mississippi, uh, friends of mine, live outside the state. Hey, you got water? There There is this, this perception, at least, that the problems in Jackson. Were felt across the entire state. I do think that's a, an issue, and all you have to do is look at businesses exiting Jackson for the adjacent counties, staying in the Central Mississippi area, but exiting the city limits of Jackson. And and many of them cited, yeah, I just I can't deal with the water instability and the the unreliability of water service. No doubt, crime, of course, is an issue as well, and. And the taxes, certainly property taxes, are generally higher. We're graduating boatloads of teachers every year that will fix those jobs, and they knew the pay when they started their education to become one, says Thomas and Greenwood. I wouldn't exactly call it boatloads, and we're not graduating enough to keep up with the demand. So that's not true, Thomas. It's a demand and supply thing. But I ask again, how much should we pay? And even though you make the point, and I get it, that they knew that when they became one, well, don't we want people who are totally, truly qualified and competent? Sure, go be a teacher, and you make this much money, and you know that, don't complain about it, but what kind of quality are we getting for that? Maybe higher pay gets better quality. And I'm not saying that what we have is not. I'm just saying that in general, that's how it works. The old saying, you get what you pay for. Shouldn't we be concerned about that? Shouldn't that figure into those decisions, those policies, that structure? I believe it does. And I think we have to consider that. So it's not just, hey, just take it. That's what you get. You knew you had that. We're out here today, back with you tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone.